0: The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kanesan. Today, I am grateful to have Professor Lua K. Yule here on the show as my guest. Professor Yule is the VHC's very first virtual visiting scholar. So thank you so much for being here today, Professor.
1: Thank you for having me. This is exciting.
0: Professor Yule is a professor of law at the University of Kansas School of Law and is also core faculty at the University of Kansas Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. She is interested in business and property law. What we usually do at the beginning of every podcast is give the interviewee a chance to describe vulnerability theory in 30 seconds. This is your elevator speech.
1: My vulnerability theory elevator pitch. I would say that vulnerability theory is a paradigm or a heuristic that decides to look at the world, decides to look at humans, decides to look at the law, As it is, it doesn't draw helpful or useful sketches um, in order to collapse the distinctions and the nuance. Instead, it takes every individual in all of their complexity as they are and makes an observation, which is at once simple and obvious but profound. And that is, we are all of us in our real lived conditions, always at every Second, in every moment, in some ways susceptible to the vagaries of the world, whether that be physical harm or metaphysical harm or mental stress or institutional and network um, impacts, we are always, always, always vulnerable to what goes on in the world around us. That changes the Plane of discourse from vulnerability and being susceptible as being a problem to just being a fact of life and raises the question, well, what do we do to help vulnerable people, which is every single human on the planet at every single moment, which is every single institution that humans are in, what do we do to help them thrive, survive, reproduce so that everyone can have their needs met?
0: What draws you to vulnerability theory?
1: So I'm probably not allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. (laughs) And that is long before I heard anything about vulnerability theory. And in fact, before the first essay was published articulating this new idea in, in in jurisprudence and political theory and feminist theory and a million places where you might situate vulnerability theory. I had this inkling in my brain, I was still in law school and that came from even being before in law school. And I, I thought to myself, well, in law, you go into your constitutional law class and they have this, you know, rational basis review and strict scrutiny level of reviews and people who think that they are smart focus on thinking about constitutional law. And I always had this question, why don't we have actual basis review? Why don't we think about the law and understand the legality of the law and understand the legality of actions taken by government based on what they actually did, what they actually wanted, not what they could have wanted, not what you know, was a possible justification. I was really, really, really sort of committed and, and interested in trying to think about and look at the world as they were. And as, as I got more and more experienced in different areas of working on law, I realized that we were never actually paying attention uh, to the world as it was. We were more and more influenced by neoclassical or, or dominant strains of economics that also collapse real people into models. Political science was also in that space. And I have a background in, in international relations and political science. And we were collapsing the nuance and reality of the world into helpful, useful models and you know basic theories. And I wanted to have a different conversation. And over time, I started chipping away at that chipping away at that and as I dug deeper and deeper and deeper and started looking for people who are having those conversations I you know found a little bit of a community and in finding that community we start interchanging guess who else is having these conversations and one day you know across my desk comes guess who else is having these conversations um this, this person who you probably know from her contribution, Martha Feynman, who you probably know from her contributions to feminist theory, uh, is having a conversation that you want to be having. And that was several years ago now. And since then, uh, everywhere I go, I'm like, but also we could just talk about the world as it is. And vulnerability theory is ready for us to have that conversation.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your background, like how you came to be a law professor at UK?
1: So I have a really interesting path into the practice of law, much less being a legal academic and teaching law. I was really, really interested, you know, if I, if I were to go back to the beginning, what I wanted to be was a linguist because I was interested in communicating with people and I was interested in language and the power of language and the power of language to shape who we were and where we were in the world. And I thought that it was really telling, right? You could also be like, you know, study rhetoric and do that. But I was, I thought it was really telling to see how different languages did that work differently? And I myself have a different voice when I'm speaking one of the different languages that I speak. So I, I have a lot of voices. And it's very funny because in some languages, you if you like pick up the phone, you say hello, and it doesn't matter the language, it's always hello. But people on the other end of the call can know what language I'm about to speak because my hello is different. So it's really, I was really interested in those ways of understanding these these metaphysical or deep deeply internal ways of understanding um, what humans are how humans interact um and for whatever reason linguistics as a job didn't seem outwardly focused enough for me and as a young person i was like you know what international relations and computers are going to be my thing. Um, And so I spent some time dabbling my fingers in that. And that took me abroad. And while I was abroad, I studying international relations abroad, I wound up and I started looking at international law. And I spent a long time studying the European Union and its relationship with Latin America. And it was an amazing time to be studying the European Union at the very beginning of the 2000s because you had this sort of international organization reaching its maturation and doing the work that I was interested in, 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 in understanding and seeing and that normally I could only see from a historical perspective. The creation of Americans and American identity was a project that is recreated every day, but had been formed. Long, obviously, before I was born, but the European Union was actually engaged in a project of using law and policy to create an identity, to create the concept of a European. And I was excited to look at that. And they were trying to export that, Um, and that's what brought me into law. And then, and I like I said, it's a crazy, it's a it's a crazy path, um, because I spent a lot of years doing illegal work and doing both legal work in a big corporate law firm, but also socioeconomic development legal work. And that landed me, um, those experiences landed me in a big corporate law firm in New York At the beginning of the last financial crisis, where once again, yeah, that's like a crazy thing. Uh, At the beginning of the last financial crisis, this person who said that she came to law because she was interested in language and international relationship or uh, international relations, excuse me, and then that I was doing socioeconomic development work. Yeah, that landed me at a corporate law firm in New York City during the financial crisis, Um, and I was probably supposed to be thinking about financial markets and more backed securities, and I was doing that kind of work, and I was thinking about distressed bankruptcy, yes, but I was watching the people, and just like it was really exciting to watch the European Union when they moved towards constitutionalizing their structure, it was amazing to watch corporations huge financial institutions, major systemically important global conglomerates face the financial crisis. And, to, and when I say watch them, I don't actually mean the corporation as an institution. I don't mean the bank as an institution. I mean the humans that make the bank run. And it was just amazing to watch how what was happening to those companies changed and impacted how those individuals saw themselves, who they thought they were, how they placed themselves in the world. And I, you know, realized that there was something really to be said about the law as a force for structuring identity. And I was frustrated in some ways that no one had taught me that when I was in law school. And so I I thought I could make a contribution and say, the law is not just a tool that we use to get things done. Um, instead, or in addition, it's a tool we use to shape not just society, but humans. And I wanted to be a part of the conversation. Um, in helping people understand that. And I was lucky enough to convince uh, some people <laughs> to give me a job and to train lawyers uh, to, you know, write contracts and negotiate, but also to, to see themselves as, as shapers of society.
0: What are you working on now? What projects are you working on?
1: I am working on a lot of projects. I am always working on a lot of projects. And I think that goes back to my interest in being in, in being embedded and engaging the world as it is. Um, and the world as it is, is always changing. And so things come up. I'm gonna tell you about like three projects that I'm excited about. Um, they're just three of many. Uh, one project that is very exciting in this exact moment Looks at the institution of private property as a tool and a mechanism for affecting disenfranchisement, um, and I, I think that that's a really important project. It 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 explains and engages and asks the question for the American political context in particular, how much of our electoral politics are predetermined by rules of property law? And I think that's really interesting for my conversations um, and my engagement with vulnerability theory uh, when it comes to the, uh, the the next project that I'm really excited about right now. Um, and that's this project call that I call property as resilience. Because what property as resilience, you know, posits is that we use the institution of primary uh, of private property, we use the institution of private property as the main tool for allocating access to mechanisms of resilience. Mechanisms of resilience include money, health care, housing right if we are all vulnerable and we're all always vulnerable you know resilience is what allows us to respond to the impacts of our vulnerability we can't take away our vulnerability but we respond to the impacts of our vulnerability i am vulnerable as i sit in the winter, in the Midwest, to the snowiness outside. And how do I respond to that? By a house. The house is my resilience to my physical vulnerability in the cold. And we organize that and we assign that through the institution of private property. We assign sort of the the sort of catch all resilience, Mechanism is money, right? I can buy whatever I need to respond to the impacts of life. Um, And how do we get money? Well, we typically um, get money through one of a number of systems that is, again, structured and disciplined by the institution of private property. That connects back to this project that looks at property as disenfranchisement because the vote. Being able to participate in democratic politics is actually a mechanism of resilience because we're able to thereby influence the folks who make the decisions on how they're going to to allocate um, to allocate access to resilience, whether that be access directly by cash or the varying rules. Like whether or not we have publicly funded healthcare, or whether we constrain or consign healthcare to our private employers and make corporations the main protector of that part of our resilience, which takes me to my third project, which is really excited, uh, uh, which is really exciting to me, and that's me thinking about the corporation and its role in fostering and allocating resilience again. Um, I think it's really important to understand that it's not just private property that we use in understanding and seeing how people are going to be able to respond to the vagaries of their existence that we call vulnerability, but it's also important to understand that the government has determined or the political system has determined that it can outsource a lot of its responsibility for helping people manage and respond to their vulnerability out to corporations and so understanding the role of corporations in in, in how we actually survive and reproduce society is exciting for me so those are the things uh, that are occupying my time these days
0: Is there one project in particular that you'll be focusing on as a virtual visiting scholar?
1: My excitement about being at the VHC for the semester is really to push both my property as resilience and corporate resilience projects um, over the finish line. I've been thinking about resilience in particular for maybe... 5 years and i think in the space of vulnerability theory we have so much work to do to actually help people understand the central observation but the point of vulnerability theory is not to convince people that everyone's vulnerable it's a fact of life and i i, I you know you articulate it and people get there to understand it the point of vulnerability theory is i think to Or the normative point, the political praxis type goal is to shape real policy so that policy actually looks a lot more like it is understanding that everyone is universally vulnerable. Um, And I think that the place where it's really, we're really ripe to be able to develop and have lots of conversations is in understanding resilience. And there's a lot of people who are doing uh, this kind of work, but I'm excited to to take up that mantle in the area specifically of property and in corporations. Um, I think that getting and connecting the observation of vulnerability with the normative goal of resilience Bridges a lot of space between different perspectives in in those areas, and allows us to start having real conversations about um, the responsive state. I'm the person who says that we already have a responsive state from a descriptive perspective. It's just that the state isn't responsive to everyone, right? The state is set up really well to respond to the interests of the folks that are the most resilient and have benefited most from our current settlement of how we actually police and gatekeep access to resilience. So I think we already have that. And I, I think having conversations about resilience and how these existing institutions are already performing these functions allows us to expand our demands so that the responsive state isn't just responsive to those at the top of a hierarchy or to the 1% or to the already powerful, but that the responsive state is responsive to the needs of every person.
0: One critique of vulnerability theory is that it disappears identity. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: I think it's a really valid concern if you don't take the time to appreciate the point at which the, you know, if the critique is going to be disappearing of identity occurs. I just, you know, my interest is in identity. Um, what I understand, what I want to understand is sort of these questions of being, and I'm still really interested in vulnerability theory. And that's because recognizing everyone's universal condition of vulnerability and thinking about resilience, does it mean that you don't have to recognize the existing status. You don't have to recognize or you don't have to to ignore the existing allocation of mechanisms of resilience. So we don't live in a world that is actually properly responding to the universal human condition. Instead, we live in a world that has only functioned to get certain groups of people who are grouped based on their identity markers, access to certain kinds of mechanisms of resilience when they organize together around that identity marker, right? So the civil rights movement arose and was an important moment for in America, particularly Black people to organize, because particularly Black people were being excluded from most of the mechanisms of resilience. Vulnerability theory doesn't ask you to forget that. Vulnerability theory doesn't ask you to reject the idea that gains were made in terms of increasing the store of resiliency within that particular community. What vulnerability theory does is take the next step and say, in the long run or in the Ideal world that we're working to build, meeting out resilience based on your identity group will ensure that we are constantly excluding folks from the coverage of whatever resilience mechanism we are relying on. Several years ago, I wrote a paper called Nobody Gives the Damn About the Gypsies. And it is that's the, the title is taken from a quote by Noam Chomsky, who's talking about Roma folks in Europe. And I wrote that paper and I talked about how one of the biggest problems for Roma folks is that the only way they could get protection is by fitting themselves into some definition of law that we've said is deserving of protection so they have to prove themselves to be minorities but they can't really show that they're minorities they need to prove themselves to be refugees but they can't show themselves to be refugees for lots of reasons they have to prove themselves to be like an ethnic group but they can't show themselves to be an ethnic group because of certain ways that they organize and have organized over time. And if you look at the Roma rights movement in these varying European countries where there's you know critical numbers of Roma, what you find is that they, you know, have recognized our organization needs to fit us into this box. And I think it's a perfect example of what vulnerability theory is trying to do. Let's not force people to fit into some special predefined box in order to get protection. For me, That doesn't mean that in 2021, we should ignore the fact that women are paid less and systematically excluded from places. That doesn't mean that in 2021, we're not supposed to notice that elected from the state of Georgia was just the 11th senator black senator to have ever served while 2000 white senators have served in the US in the US Senate right that vulnerability theory doesn't ask us to ignore that and it doesn't even ask us to refuse to respond to that what it says is that that's not the end fix that could be an intermediate fix but maybe we can push ourselves to look for the end fix today, even though there are intermediate fixes like pulling up the economic status of African-Americans in this country through, let's say something like reparations that would fix a particular group-based harm in the past, but doesn't actually do much for what we do and what things are going to look like moving forward. And that's where vulnerability really focuses. And I think if you're willing to agree and, and, and see and appreciate that nuance you can get comfortable with the clear call um, within the vulnerability space that identity-based resolutions are at best partial solutions to structural problems.
0: What would you like listeners to remember about our interview today?
1: If you only remember one thing, I would say remember that it's more important to talk about the world as it is and to problem solve a world as it is than it is some model of an imagined world, of a perfect system of perfect autonomous individuals and a perfectly organized state and perfectly written laws. Um, we're going to get a lot further if we, if we actually deal with reality.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Lua. This All right. Nice. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.